what I find is that they're basically destructive. So they they don't do any they don't they don't create anything. They just destroy stuff. So that's good because that's capitalism, creative destruction. We all agree. Full circle, yes, good. All right, um, I get, sent you guys an email with um, the reading through vacation, and I'll get you the full day-by-day syllabus um, over the weekend, is what I hope. Come to the table, Jimmy. See, everyone else wanted to sit at the table, you alone. They actually didn't, but now they are, so that's good. Okay, let's see. Um, table, table, table. Oh, are you trying to plug in your computer? Is that an issue? I think there's a plug in this direction, so sit next to Nicole. Okay. Um, good. With luck, you can trip someone, and they will fall and sue, and we'll learn a little bit more about um, making up stories for money. You have to admit that's pretty good. But why did I just do that? Okay, let's just see who's here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Um, were you guys iced in? How's campus today? I would barely snow. What? I would barely snow because it was a little bit slippery. Yeah. Um, all right, is this what I want? So, um, yes, good. Um, why is this happening to me? Okay, oh, I see. Oh, I see why this is happening to me. It says on my screen, God hates you. That's why this is happening to you. What? <laughs> I was wondering why it was happening to me, and my screen was saying it's because God hates me. Just, I think it's, God hates everyone, right? But also loves everyone. It's a love-hate relationship he has with us. Isn't that what Paradise Lost is about? Isn't that what Spencer is about? Why would these knights be tempted? What's the point of tempting them? What's the point of temptation to begin with? Okay, Joseph, you're here. Um, Abigail, there you are, yes. Um, Noah. That's kind of convenient the way we're going counterclockwise. And we'll keep doing it with Nicole. But now we can't keep going counterclockwise. It's all very sad. Connie. Um, Emma. Uh, Ian is not here. Nope. Uh, Jimmy is here. He has a seat at the table. That's good. Aria, did I see you? I did not. Um, Prue, yes. Um, Darhan. Um, Andrea, yes, there you are. Um, <coughs> Onur. Um, Gabby. Um, Lin Fei. And Angela. Okay, um, so let's talk briefly about the partner's tale. Did you guys read it? Did you like it? Did you read the partner's prologue? <laughs> was that a, an eye-rolling nod or just a nod? Um, it was a nod. What about you? Yeah, just a nod. Okay, um, what do we think of the partner from his prologue? How does he, how does, what's his trick? So the tale is part of his trick, right? All right, let, we can start with the tale. What's the tale about? Yeah. Um, three 
friends who find some gold and each person wants more gold for themselves than for the others, so they two of them devise plans to kill the one and that one devises plans to kill the other two, and then they all end up dead. Right. And who um, what is it that turns out actually to be under the tree? Why did they why did they go there to begin with? How did they find the money? Yeah. Um, and their friends died, so they went to, to get this death person. Yeah, this death cat, as, as you youngins say, right? Did she use the word cat for, like, interesting people? So, I mean, I know it's like a beat attitude. Um, this death person, um, they're angry at death. Um, and so they're told where they can find death. Um, and do they find death? Yes. In what sense do they find death? Yeah, so they find death by dying. Um, so it's, do you guys know the famous um, story that um, um, W. Somerset Maugham um, tells, which is then quoted by John O'Hara, called Appointment in Samara? Um, anyone know that? It's, oh, you should know it. I'm just going to read it to you. It, it's, it's about finding death. Um, oh, it's about markets. It's about death and markets, right? Um, um, so let me, hadn't occurred to me that it was about markets until this second, but what isn't about markets, right? So, um, So the question is, will Goodreads give me the whole thing or not? What do you think? Yes, okay. So in, in the play, um, there is um, a character named Death who appears at the very end of the play. Um, so John O'Hara just, just says Death speaks. He doesn't tell you that it's from a play, but just so you know why Death speaks. This is Death speaking. And death says, there was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. And in a little while, the servant came back, white and trembling, and said, Master, just now when I was in the market, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now, lend me your horse, and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. Think that'll work? Just, yeah, sad. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, and the servant mounted it, and he dug his spurs. Sit at, um, can you sit at the table? We're, we're, we're aiming at having people sit at the table. There's an enthusiastic demand in this class. Um, for everyone to sit at the table. I came in, I said, sit by the walls, but everyone said, no, 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 we want to sit at the table. Um, so you can sit here wherever. Just don't trip on um, any wires. All right, so uh, I'll just start over. This is um, from W. Somerset Mom. It's called Appointment in Samara, and we're talking about it in the context of the partner's tale in Chaucer. So death speaks. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. 
Um, so I guess the crucial thing to notice here is that um, these are people with power. The merchant certainly is a person with power um, because he is a, um, a powerful economic actor. Um, and so where does he send his servant uh, over whom he has power to market? Um, so that's you wouldn't even notice that as a context um, except in a class like this. Um, I didn't notice it until I thought about it just now. So there's a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. And in a little while, the servant came back, white and trembling, and said, Master, just now when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now, lend me your horse, and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, and the servant mounted it, and he dug his spurs in its flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he went. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw me. Remember who's speaking? So death describes what the um, servant said to the master. We forget that this is a first-person narrative. Um, but when we know that death speaks, table, 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 everyone else is sitting at the table. You don't want to be the one person who chose not to sit at the table today. Everyone else made a free, free choice to sit at the table. The freest choice you ever made, right? Good. Um, so remember, death is speaking. Do you know, do you know appointment in Samara, Ian? Is, that a, is the story appointment in Samara at all familiar to you? No. OK. Um, should I start again? It's not long. I'll, I'll start one more time. Um, if anyone else comes in, they can go to Samara. Um, so death is speaking. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. And in a little while, the servant came back white and trembling and said, Master, just now when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now lend me your horse, and I will ride away from the city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, and the servant mounted it. And he dug his spurs in its flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he went. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw me, that is death, and he saw me standing in the crowd. And he came to me and said, why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? That was not a threatening gesture, I said. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. The end. Um, so if you go to meet death, um, it's, if someone offers you a meeting with death, if there's one thing that you learn in this class, it should be not to take them up on that author, offer. <coughs> Don't go to meet death if you have a choice. Um, so however, um, the three um, men in the partner's tale go to meet death um, because they're pissed at him. Um, and um, what does that turn out to mean then? It means that all three of them die, right? Um, but how do they die? Where is death in the story? Is death in the story? Is death personified in the story at all? Not at all? Do you think the person who sends them? That would mean. Yeah. Don't you think he's death? 
as a personification? Or do you not think that? What do people think? I mean, I think so. Death uh, gives death, so he leads him to the death, kind of acts as death itself. Yeah. So it's, so part of the issue here, um, and if you think about it, it's, um, it is in itself an interesting distinction, um, and it's a distinction you've just made, Joseph, and I think it's also um, in this class an interesting distinction, is that they think that they are meeting death as um, an external thing within the world. That is, that there is a world, and in the world there are various entities. That's what we learn. Um, when we're born and we learn. There are various entities in the world. Um, there are um, shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and... Anyone know that? You guys remember Alice in Wonderland? Actually, it's Through the Looking Glass. The time has come... Oh, yeah. The time has come to do what? The walrus said... Do you guys not know The Walrus and the Carpenter? Oh, you should. It's so good. The time has come. So The Walrus and the Carpenter go walking one day, and they find a bunch of oysters, and um, they they gather the oysters around them, and the oysters are very sweet and cute. And um, then The Walrus and the Carpenter find find that they're hungry so that they eat the oysters. So it's all very sad for the oysters. at any rate, a famous um, couplet in it, it. Really, this is not at all familiar to you from your, from your iPad-obsessed childhoods where no one read to you? It's so sad. iPads were like middle school for us. OK, so iPhones. No, iPhones were 2006 is when they were, when they were marketed. So you guys were like six or seven or eight, right? No? no? When were you born? 92. 92? Okay. Um, other people? So, so you were 14. So do you remember them coming in? <coughs> iPhones? No. All right. Were they, like, aren't things when they first come on the market, like, less, like, more expensive? Like the Tesla? So, like, I feel like you need to get to, like, the second or the third generation to have them be, like, a really big thing. Yeah, but they were, they were all over the news. Even if you didn't have one, everyone wanted one. They were really hard to get. The lines, at the, you guys don't know about the whole lines outside the Apple Store stuff. This is when we do the notion of expenditure, which we're going to do um, in a couple of weeks. Um, one of the, um, I'll just tell you this now, um, that there were lines, people were lining up. Um, um, uh, Steve, Steve Jobs um, introduced the iPhone at one of those Apple events and it was all over the TV and it was all over the news that night. No one had ever seen anything like this. No keyboard, what is he talking about? How can you have a Palm Pilot without a keyboard um, that can make phone calls but there was no buttons to push to dial? Um, but then he did this amazing um, show and he just showed the iPhone working and no one had ever seen anything like that. Um, and the, the day that it appeared on the market, um, it, people were lined up in five and six hour waits all over the country um, to get iPhones. And people were like driving to 
um, obscure lesser cities of our republic where they thought there would be fewer people who would be trying to get iPhones um, because they would be in the Midwest and it would be cold or something like that. But even in Wichita, people were lined up out the door for iPhones, and they would wait for hours, and then Apple ran out of iPhones like the first day. People had been waiting for hours, um, didn't get their iPhones, <coughs> and um, they were really, really upset. Um, and then they had some more iPhones like a week later. They ramped up production a week later, and there was this one guy um, I'm not sure this was actually a week later, it may have been the first day, but sometime very early when people were lined up for iPhones, there was this one guy who got there really, really early, and he was like first in line at a Best Buy. And he came out with an iPhone, and there's this giant crowd of people, and he threw the iPhone to the ground and stomped on it and shattered it into hundreds of pieces. He destroyed an iPhone. So all these people, he paid for it. It was his iPhone. He was allowed to do it. But all these people were desperate for iPhones, and this guy came in, spent what, you're right, was a lot of money. Um, it was like this was for the iPhone 1, and basically what the iPhone 1 could do, there were no apps on the iPhone 1. What the iPhone 1 could do was it could make a phone call um, without buttons. And um, I don't even think it had a camera. Um, it could surf the net, but um, there, were, there was nothing that was really well um, 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 adapted to iPhones. But anyhow, this guy just destroyed it, and um, people jumped him. They were so angry. It was his property. But people online jumped him, and the cops had to come in and save him. And um, someone said, why did you do that? And he basically said, because I could. Um, so it was a very expensive prank that got him hurt and got, very, got a lot of people very, very upset. Um, they had their friends. They, 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 I think the line was so into this guy being jumped that they were willing to, just that they would save their places. Yeah. Yes. So what you had here was, on the one hand, generosity among the place savers, like everyone could have cheated. It was a kind of game theory thing where everyone could have defected and just moved up like three spots online if they wanted to. But on the other hand, they were so outraged by this iPhone destroyer um, that they were willing not to take an advantage that they could have taken in order to see this iPhone destroyer punished. Uh, this leads to the concept which we may or may not talk to and talk about in this class, but which I actually wrote a book about, called altruistic punishment. Um, and that sounds like an oxymoron, altruistic punishment, um, but it's actually required for human societies to work. Um, altruistic punishment is when you get pissed off at someone else, not for what they've done to you, but for what they've done to um, a person who couldn't defend themselves. So if you see um, you're sitting on, or you're standing on a bus, and um, a little old lady gets on the bus, and so does um, a young skateboarder, and there's one seat, and the young skateboarder manspreads on that seat while the little old lady is swaying and almost falling, why should you care? Um, but you do. And um, if you're gutsy enough, you may say something to the skateboarder, but you'll certainly say something to your neighbor, like, what a jerk. Um, and um, that is altruistic. If you say something to the skateboarder, that's why I said if you're gutsy enough, if you say something to the skateboarder, then 
you are not getting any possible benefit out of that. You might get into a fight and you might get hurt, but if the skateboarder does get up and the little old lady, um, uh, the LOL as we call them, um, doesn't roll around on the floor laughing her ass, if she does um, get to sit, um, you haven't gotten anything out of that for yourself. You are still in the same position you were in before, only you're less outraged by what has happened to this other person. On the other hand, if the skateboarder um, punches you in the nose, um, that's the risk. So there's, there's a risk which you can quantify that one in five times you'll be punched in the nose, so you'll get a fifth of a punch in the nose each time you do this, um, and you'll get no benefit for yourself. Um, so it's altruistic because you are, um, you are absorbing pain, a fifth of a punch in the nose every time you do this, um, for no benefit for yourself. And so you are punishing by criticizing, by critiquing, by getting into, by embarrassing, by getting into um, a pissing contest with the skateboarder. Um, you are punishing them and your punishment is altruistic because you're not getting anything out of that punishment. Um, psychologically you are, but that's not the point. Um, in, a, in a game theory scenario, you're not. Um, the fact, the puzzle is why it can be a psychological pleasure to feel outraged, why we act upon outrage. Um, so that's what they did. So people, people um, kept their places online, um, didn't, uh, didn't take over their places, but got really, really angry and altruistically punished this person who was completely within his rights. Um, they just couldn't believe how antisocial it was to destroy something that everyone else wanted. Um, and that's why they got so angry. So if instead there had been a really good um, internet implementation of iPhones um, and everyone had the previous generation iPhone, they would have gone online and read The Walrus and the Carpenter by Lewis Carroll. And what they would have read in The Walrus and the Carpenter are, among other lines, the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax. Sealing wax is not sealing wax, it's wax that you use to seal letters with. Of shoes and, sh or it's, it's also the duct tape of the time. Of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, of why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. So those are many things that you can talk about. And part of Lewis Carroll's joke there is that there is no um, intentional, as set theorists put it, um, connection between the things that are being talked about. That is, um, you can say the time has come to talk of many things, of USDAN and SCC and RAB and um, Olin Sang, and all those things would be the same type of thing. But what the walrus says, and if you just think about the walrus and the carpenter, why, are those, why is that a pair? Why are they a thing? Um, the idea is that you just have a random collection of objects, shoes, ships, sealing wax, cabbages, kings, 
the reason that the sea is boiling hot, which it isn't at the time, under global warming it's getting there, um, the reason that the sea is hot, the question, do pigs have wings, what do they all have in common? What do they all have in common? Sorry? Well, everything has something in common with something else, right? To, you, to quote a great philosophical, a great and famous pointless philosophical statement, um, which comes from first order logic, everything is what it is and not some other thing. So is that helpful to you for your life? Everything is what it is and not some other thing. Um, C.I. Lewis said that. Um, everything is what it is and not some other thing. Okay, so that's told you like nothing. All that is is saying A equals A um, and always <clears throat> equals A. But that's something that all things have in common, is that each thing is the thing that it is and not some other thing, and this is true of all things. Uh, there's a very famous essay in philosophy by the philosopher W.V. Quine, um, who wrote an essay called On What There Is. So that's helpful. And he says it's really easy to pose the, what he calls the ontological question. Um, that question can be posed in three words. The three words are, what is there? So you know, you're asking about being itself. And so the question is, what is there? And he says, not only that, but it's even easier to answer the ontological question than to pose it, because you can answer it in a single word. So what, would, what do you think the single word answer would be? Everything. Yes. The single word is everything. So what is there? Everything. There you go. So shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings and the question why the sea is boiling hot and um, the, the question whether pigs have wings, they all share in the fact that they're each of them a thing. And um, so they have that in common. Um, in poetry, they often have something more in common, which is that a lot of them will <coughs> rhyme with each other. Um, that is, um, whether pigs have wings rhymes with um, kings. Um, cabbages and kings alliterate, so they have in common the k sound um, at the beginning of the words. Shoes and ships alliterate. Um, shoes, ships. Um, sealing wax has the S as a letter, even if not the sound SH at the beginning of it. So poetry actually will often tend to give you another reason to lump things together. Um, roses, violets, sugar, and you, why are those all lumped together? Yeah, so they're all lumped together because they're things that you can um, predicate very easily. Everyone knows that roses are red. Everyone accepts that violets are blue, even though they are actually violet. Um, everyone accepts that sugar is sweet. And then you rhymes with blue, so that's why blue and you are in those things. Okay, so in The Partner's Tale, there are a whole bunch of things. In Appointment in Samara, there are a whole bunch of things. In our lives, there are a whole bunch of things in the world. Um, another nursery rhyme goes, the world is so full of a number of things that I think we should all be happy as. 
not familiar to you either, think of rhymes. The world is so full of a number of things that I think we all should be happy as. Rhyme it. Kings. Kings, yes. Um, so the world is full of a number of things. The question is, is death one of the things in the world? That's kind of the question that Joseph was leading us to. Is death one of the things in the world? So what do the three young men in the partner's tale think? Why, Andrew? Because they're going to find it, and they want to find some kind of... It seems like they're looking for like a physical thing. Yeah. Yeah, or a physical person. Yeah, a thing in the world. Um, there's a bunch of things in the world. Death is one of them. Um, okay, so what? Um, if death, if if you want to avoid death, you know, you might want to avoid the plague, which is clearly a thing in the world. Um, you might want to avoid your roommate's boyfriend because he's a jerk and he's a thing in the world. Um, you might want to avoid your landlord because you owe her rent. Um, so and so, you might want to avoid death. The world's big, lots of places to go. If death turns out to be in in Baghdad, where will you go? Samara, which is clear. Death's in Baghdad, so go to Samara, so it's all good. Um, and um, so they go looking for this thing called death. And what do they find instead? A thing called gold, gold treasure, wealth. Um, and so they find this other thing <coughs> called wealth. And there, it looks like even we, who are the audience, who know you really shouldn't go around looking for death, and that it's really naive to think that death is a thing in the world. Um, because death is the end of the world. Not a thing in the world, but the end of your world. Um, there's a poem by the really interesting 20th century poet, Ellie Sisman, who, when he was dying, um, wrote a poem which began, Nothingness is all around us, everywhere, at the next turn on the stairway or the next um, um, turn off the highway, um, we can find ourselves, um, what, what is it, detouring into Erwan. Do people know what Erwan is? E-R-E-H-W-O-N. It's the name of a novel. What is it, Jimmy? Yeah, it's Nowhere Backwards, and it's the name of a novel um, by the 19th century novelist Samuel Butler. Um, so Erwan would be nowhere um, backwards, so even less of aware than nowhere itself. So death is everywhere, and what it means for death to be everywhere is that everywhere is the exit to nowhere. There is no instant in your life that can't be the exit to nowhere. As talking heads say, we're on a road to nowhere. Um, but for Ellie Sisman, we're at the exit to nowhere. Next exit is always to nowhere. You don't have to take that exit. If you're lucky, you won't. But eventually, that's where the road will take you. So instead, they find treasure. So that's great. And so what do they do? Just quick plot summary. Yeah. They need to. If they want to keep it, they need to transport it down from the mountain wherever they are. So they send <coughs> one of the guys to go into town and get some transportation. Mm -hmm. And 
while he's gone, the other two plot against him, and he plots against them, and then they all kill each other. Right. And so it turns out that the old man, when he sent them to the treasure, what he was doing, and he said, death is where the treasure is, is he saying the treasure itself is death? Is that the right way to interpret what he's saying, or is that simplifying it too much? Does he know when he sends them to the treasure that they will die? That what he's doing is sending them to their deaths? Or do you think he's an old man who just doesn't care about treasure and he's really wants to see these three young men do really well and so he knows where there's a treasure where they can do really well and of course he's naive and stupid so he has no idea that they might behave badly? Yeah. They were really rude to him so I think that he wouldn't have minded if they <laughs> yeah. Um, so, again, I think that's a good reason to think that he is death. That is, that he is death like the woman in the marketplace in Baghdad. Um, and uh, what he does is he sends them to their death. And the idea is not that death is the grim re- reaper with a sickle who just comes and um, kills you like as an enemy does. That is, death is not the enemy who's so powerful um, that you can't um, defeat them. Um, If there's a little old woman on the bus and the person comes in and is manspreading in the handicapped seat, is in a black robe carrying a sickle, you probably shouldn't tell them to get up. Um, But... That's that idea of death as someone who is all-powerful but still separate, still a person in the world, that's not the idea in the partner's tale. Death is a person in the world insofar as he is sending them to their deaths, but he's also a little bit like an allegory. That is to say, an externalization of their own greed, their own self-serving behavior, their own therefore self-destructively greedy behavior, self-destructively self-serving behavior, which is to say that he is an opportunity, he's a catalyst, as we chemists say. Anyone know what a catalyst is in chemistry? What is it? Um, well, I just know it's like a starter for something, like something that sets everything else in motion. Yeah, and isn't part of the reaction that it starts. That is, the catalyst is still there when the reaction is over. The catalyst doesn't become part of the final product. So a catalyst brings things together um, through chemical um, uh, um, intermediation. It brings the things that are going to um, combine or um, that are going to, uh, whatever chemical reaction occurs, the catalyst starts it, um, but isn't part of the end product. So you don't use catalysts up. That's the important thing to know about a catalyst. If you put a catalyst into something, you'll still have as much catalyst at the end as you did at the beginning, even though chemically everything else has changed. so, and enzymes are catalysts with proteins. You all know that. It's important you learn things in this class. Avoid death, and enzymes are catalysts with proteins attached to them, or at least amino acids. Um, so, um, the old man is a catalyst. He is not 
the ontological, philosophical mystery of death. He's what catalyzes the actions that are going to cause the death of these three young men. And what about the treasure? He says, you'll find death under that tree, and what they find under the tree is the treasure. What does that tell you about the treasure? Is that death, the treasure itself? That's what the old man says. You'll find death there. So is the treasure death? Yeah. No, um, but it's the thing that causes the men, like sets the events in motion um, so that the men eventually do die. Like, in a way, the gold is also, I think, a catalyst for Nice. Death. Yeah. So if you, yeah, Andrew. And it kind of reminds me of the Midas Touch thing where it's like, as much as they want the gold, they can eat or drink. It's the same kind of like, yeah. Yeah, they want something, the gold. Um, they want the treasure, but they want it for itself. And in wanting it for itself, notice that they need something to consume. That is, they not only do they need a way to get the treasure into town, but they also need food and drink. They need something that they can consume um, in order to get this inconsumable thing this thing that only has exchange value, to bring that with them. Um, and so, again, it's not an important part of the story, except that, that on a deep level it is, um, is that the reason it is a catalyst and it is like the Midas touch, it is something that in itself will cause people to act as though... Um, it has value in itself, and those actions will bring on destruction. The belief that treasure, that gold, let's just say the gold, has value in itself causes destruction. And so when, if you say that death is under the tree, um, it's not that gold is death, it's that the desire for gold leads to death, that if you go to the tree where the gold is, you will, if you go with enough intensity and enough demand for that gold and enough greed for something that can't be used, can only be exchanged, if you go to it with enough greed, what you are desiring without knowing it or what you are headed towards without knowing it is death. So heading towards gold in with the intensity that they do is heading towards death. And the mistake that they make is to think that death is a thing in the world rather than something that comes out of a bad, the result of a bad choice that they make inside themselves um, in thinking that, that things in the world um, are all that they have to deal with. And um, the difference would be, so this is, now I'm going to say something which is not literally true, but um, you could say that the parable, so you guys know that they're biblical parables, right? Parables are stories that, um, the simplest parable is a story um, 
in which, um, um, and I should tell you an important one right now, and I will, um, a story in which there's a little bit of a mystery there, but then you understand the mystery and you get a moral insight. So they're a little bit like fables. So does anyone know the parable of the talents? Can you tell it, Jimmy? I mean, I vaguely remember. Um, so there's a, like, a wealthy merchant, and he has like 40 talents of gold. Um, and he gives one to one servant and one to the other, and one of the guys, I think he buries it? Yeah, so he gives, he, he's going away for a year. Yeah. And he gives a talent to, one talent each to three servants and asks them to take care of these talents. Talent is a quantity of money. Um, our word talent, like... Um, the, the um, talented 10th um, that Du Bois talks about, for example, or someone who has a whole lot of talent, um, is actually a metaphorical word that comes from money. Originally, it meant a quantity of money um, done by weight. Um, so you, in the Bible, you talk about 13 talents of gold or something like that. So when we talk about talent as an um, abstract skill or... Um, um, uh, vocation or um, ability that someone has, that's a metaphorical use. Okay, so he gives three talents, one, one each to one of, to each of three servants, and then go on. And um, one of the guys buries it. I can't remember the third one. I don't know what he did. Um, but the other guy took the money and like, invested it, and he like, multiplied it several times over. And um, the, the master returns. And he got mad at one of them, at two of them. Two of them, yeah. Yeah, and I think he got he was happy with the guy that multiplied them, but I'm not 100 sure. Right. So the parable says, "To what may the kingdom?" Let me see if I can get exactly the right version again, especially since I have that um, link to the. Well, I'll just do parable of the talents, Geneva. Um, you will you will see that I gave you a link to the Geneva Bible rather than the King James Bible. Um, oh, Geneva College, no, that's not what I want. Um, the Geneva Bible was the first really good Bible, not the first, not the first, um, but the first really good Bible um, done in English. And um, the King James Version, which is the standard Protestant Bible now, the one that if you hear biblical language, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not, um, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. That's the King James Version, which was done in Shakespeare's day. Um, the King James Version of the Bible, is that a familiar um, uh, term to people. Um, one interesting thing about the King James Version of the Bible is it um, contains, and I believe this is the only um, such example in the King James Version, is that it contains a little tip of the hat to Shakespeare, which is that the translator of the King James Bible, Lancelot Andrews, was a friend of Shakespeare's. And on Shakespeare's 44th birthday, um, he published his translation of Psalm 44. And if you look in the King James Bible and look at the 44th word in the translation of Psalm 44, guess what it'll be? What? No, shake. And if you look at the 44th word from the end of Psalm 44, spear. Um, so there's a little Shakespeare code. Um, Dan Brown should do something with this. There's a little Shakespeare code 
in the King James Bible. At any rate, however, the Bible that most people read in England for still for another 50 or 60 years until the middle of the 17th century was not the King James Bible, but the Geneva Bible, um, which the King James Bible is based on, um, but which is different in interesting ways. Um, so I'm just going to try to see, but I'll just give you the New English translation. Um, so this is the modern translation. Um, so, for it is like a man, what is the kingdom of heaven like? And Jesus says, for it is like a man going on a journey who summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Um, is that a familiar phrase to you, each according to his ability? From each according to his ability to each according to his needs? Not at all familiar? That is famous as a Marxist doctrine. That is, in communism, you take from every person, gives the community, hence communism, communism, according to his ability. Everyone does what they are able to do, and everyone gets what they need to survive. So from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Um, so when people say that, right-wing um, folks sputter and say that's communist. What they don't realize is it actually comes from the Bible. It's from Acts in the Bible. Um, the disciples are given, are asked um, to contribute each according to his ability and are given each according to his needs. So this is one place where that phrase appears. So to one, the master gave five talents to another two and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So remember, this is the kingdom of heaven. The one who had received five talents went off right away and put his money to work and gained five more. In the same way, the one who had gained two, two more. But the one who had received one talent went out and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money in it. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled his accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more, saying, Sir, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one with the two talents also came and said, Sir, you entrusted <coughs> two talents to me. See, I have gained two more. His master answered, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So the point is, if you get five talents, you're expected to make five more. If you get two, you're expected to make two more. Um, so it's not how talented you are, it's what you do with them. Um, the one, um, uh, then the one who had received the one talent came and said, Sir, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So this one slave basically says, I know you're a hard-headed businessman and you get you harvest where you did not sow and gather where you did not scatter seed. Doesn't sound like such a good guy, but according to the Bible, he actually is. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. This is your talent. I didn't spend it. I kept it safe for you because I was afraid of you. I was afraid and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is your what is yours. But his master answered, 
evil and lazy slave, so you knew that I harvest where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't scatter. Then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received money back with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten, for the one who has will be given more, and he will have more than enough, but the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless slave into the outer darkness, that is to say hell, or this is then understood to mean hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's what the afterlife is compared to according to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're given, and the, the, the nice way of understanding this is if God gives you talents, you're supposed to use them and not just say, oh, life is pointless and I'm not going to use my talents. Um, John Milton um, talks about, he has a poem about his own blindness and he says that um, that one talent is lodged with me useless because I can't see, um, I can't use my talent. And he's very depressed about this. Um, but the idea here is that you have a parable and it may not quite make sense to you because this master looks like a jerk to some people. And um, the frightened um, servant tries not to get into trouble, so he gets into terrible trouble. Whereas the risk-taking servants, um, they get rewarded. And then the moral of the story is from those who have, to those who have, more will be given. And to those who have not, even the little they have will be taken away which does seem to be the moral of certain um, tax cuts and the way they're implemented um, in the US today. Um, but so parables are tricky. And it may be that we have a tricky parable in which treasure turns out to be death in the partner's tale. OK, do bring in, we were going to do Kawabata today. Do bring in the Kawabata tomorrow and uh, look at the latte. Um, email that I sent you, the latte post I sent you today, which has the um, next, which has basically the uh, syllabus up through vacation, and I'll try and finish the entire syllabus um, by Monday. See you guys tomorrow.